Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. We're starting to feel the ramp up to the holiday season in the screening room. Welcome. I am. Welcome. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from MadWolf.com, and this is the Screening Room Podcast, brought to you by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. With their 70-foot-wide ultra screen, featuring Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Lounger recliners. We'll start with a big one that took a while to get here, but it's here now and very highly anticipated. A chronicle of the years leading up to Queen's legendary appearance at the 1985 Live Aid concert. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. I enjoyed the show. I also write songs. Our uh, lead singer just quit. Then you'll need someone new. I love the way you move on stage. The whole room belongs to you. Don't you see what you could be? No one will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Do it again. One more. How many more Galileos do you want? Roger, there's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. I've been looking forward to this and kind of dreading it both. And I think the thing that's always made me a little nervous is the PG-13 rating. I don't feel like a story about Freddie Mercury ought to have a PG-13 rating. Yeah, you know what? I've talked to a few people leading up to this movie that feel the same way. They're they're excited about it, but, uh, you know, should I be... And I'm with you on that, and also the fact that I saw that the, the uh, surviving members of Queen are executive producers. You yeah. know, that's not always, you know, it's not always a, a real death knell, but it, it means that they're probably going to pull some punches. Yeah. You know, yeah. we saw it with Straight Outta Compton, yeah. and as good as Straight Outta Compton was, let's be honest, they, uh, you know, they skipped over some yeah, things. Yeah, they did. Uh, and they do, I think they do even more so here. But uh, the good part is it's it's better than... I thought it would be. Um, mainly, it's driven by first of all the performance of Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury. He, he's incredible. He you know, really you, is. You just knew it from the, the the first trailers. You know, it's like no matter what you thought of the movie, you're like, oh, I totally buy him. Even yeah. the first pictures. Yeah, and and that's the thing because he was such a not only an iconic rock frontman, singer, performer, writer. But, you know, he had such an extravagant persona mm-hmm. that it would be easy to just do a parody, do a yeah. caricature, yeah. you know, strut around like Mick Jagger, right. you know, sure. something like that. But he doesn't do that. He has the look down. You know, the teeth look real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has that. He has his mannerisms, his way of moving down. And then, of course, when it comes to the singing, he doesn't do his own singing. But you can tell that when they were filming, he was actually singing because mm-hmm. the muscles, he's yeah. not just mo- yeah. lip syncing. You know, you got the muscles in his neck and his throat moving, and they mix it very well with um, original Queen music, which, again, it's just a reminder of how great those songs are. Yeah, you know, you know? It, just like Straight Outta Compton, you're watching that movie going, God, I forgot how great this music yeah. was. Like, you know, with Queen, even more so. Yeah. they, they Not re- a bad song in the bunch. They really do. They, they do some great ones, and uh, so it reminds you of that. But then they also mix in, there's a singer that I was not aware of. Apparently, he's a pretty successful Christian singer named Mark Martell, I believe is his name. And I watched a couple of his YouTube videos doing uh, some Queen songs. And man, he can really get close to Freddie Mercury. So that's the voice they use for the live performances? For some of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. For some of them, like when he's sitting at the piano and maybe um, doing a song for the first time, yeah, they use his this uh, other singer, Mark Martell's a voice, and they kind of mix it in and out. So it, it's, it seems very authentic. It mm-hmm. really does. And uh, the 
the director, well, we should say half of the director, three-fourths of the director, we don't really know. Brian Singer was the main director, and then, as you may know, very famously let go uh, at somewhere along the line. And then uh, uncredited, uh, an actor-director named Dexter Fletcher finished up, I guess. But um, the performances, the concert sequences, are really well done, uh, especially the Live Aid. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, now I saw the IMAX version, and there's really no other reason to see the IMAX version except for the Live Aid, and it's worth it. I mean, it is thrilling the way they recreate that incredible performance. So if you can, you know, if you can swing the IMAX, that for that sequence only, um, it'll be or alone, it'll be it'll be worth it. But it gets into problems with well, first of all, the other members of Queen, they might not as well not even be characters. I mean, they're so watered down. I don't know if because they're still living, they wanted not to have any faults at all in the movie. But they're just basically reduced to reaction shots. Right, right. Now, now maybe he was, Freddie Mercury was such a bigger-than-life, you know, um, person, personality mm-hmm. that maybe that's how they felt. I don't know. But you've got to give them some sort of. It was a band, and that's what they try to get, get uh, across in the movie. You know, we're a family, that sort of thing. But they water it down so much that they're barely even characters. And they... They miss out, I think, exploring. We've talked before. A lot of these biographies, they they start to go wrong because they go too big. Yeah. You know, you try to encapsulate everything, and you miss out on some intimate moments that that could really serve the movie better. And I think the main relationship here is the one that Freddie Mercury had with Mary Austin, longtime friend. He wrote Love of My Life for her and some other songs. A lot of people think that he wrote You're My Best Friend for her, but he didn't. He didn't write that song. But anyway... They were longtime friends. And Lucy Boynton. Lucy Boynton plays her. From Sing Street right. and, uh, and uh, Blackcoat's Daughter. Yeah, and you can tell right away. They Not only the actors have chemistry, but they that's every time they focus on those two, that's where the emotional core of this movie is. That's where you could really find some in- intimacy. But they, they don't stay with it long enough. They move and they broaden the focus out. And I think that was... That's maybe a lost opportunity. It's still, it's still good. Their scenes together are really good, and that's when you feel like maybe I'm getting to know these people mm-hmm. because you certainly know the music. You're reminded about how great the music is. That's thrilling. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're jamming to it. You're, you're feeling like you know, all Live Aid all over again, all that. But you don't feel like you get to know them any better. Right, right. You really don't. And isn't, isn't that the, the main point, goal the point of, of something biopic, like yeah. this? I mean, if you want to see him in concert, we could see an old, you know, an old concert film or something like that. But you really, you want to feel like maybe you get to know him a little bit better. And I suppose maybe you do. It, it does talk about, you know, uh, Mercury's, um, you know, his home life and his, you know, his feeling like an outsider. And, and, and that's all great, but it's totally glossed over, mm-hmm. as well as his hedonistic lifestyle. Because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, this is PG-13. Yeah. So how, how much are they going to get into it, you know? So I do remember from the trailer being a little worried that they were going to focus too much on one heterosexual relationship and kind of skim over, you know, his bisexuality. Mm-hmm. And that I think that that would be really unfortunate. But it, it, do, it doesn't really do that. No, no. They, you know, the, in the beginning, his relationship with, with uh, Mary was a, a sexual relationship. But then, you know, after it became clear to her how he was and claimed to, and he was clear about it as well, then they became just lifelong friends. And it certainly gets into his uh, his partying, let's let's say that, and then, and then and toward the end, of course, his last few years of his life, he was with uh, a long time, he had a long time relationship, and so they get into that toward the end of his life as well. But it's just, it's not one that gets as intimate 
uh, and with with all the characters of the band as you might like. It's mm-hmm. just it's it's a, it's a greatest hits package. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Those hits are great. Yeah. So I think it's going to be crowd pleasing, uh, and it's more effective than than really I had hoped because like you, I was a bit fearful mm-hmm. of it. But uh, but I think it's it's a it's a crowd pleaser and it still comes out as as well done and and the performance of Rami Malek just really just just incredible. He's been kind of a an up and comer for a while mm-hmm. now. And if people aren't immediately familiar with him, he might be a guy that you see his face and go, oh, yeah, I've seen him in stuff. Yeah. You know, I know he's had that Mr. Robot show, which oh, okay. we don't watch, but yeah. a lot of people do. But he's had some supporting roles in, in several movies. Well, now this this is here to say uh, he's got a, a serious talent, and uh, this is a definite calling card that he is here to stay. So uh, a recommendation, maybe lukewarm, but sure. still a recommendation for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Next up is one that a lot of horror fans, ourselves included, have been looking for. Looking forward to for a very long time. It's a darkness swirling at the center of a world-renowned dance company. The remake of the Italian horror classic Suspiria. When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. I feel like I'm not even here yet. You have to decide what is it you want to be for this company. There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor. You are living with dangerous people. You're making some kind of deal with them. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. This one we're going to have to rein ourselves in because this could easily be a podcast just about this movie. There's so much to digest, so much to talk about, but uh, safe to say that we both loved it. Loved it. Loved Loved it it so much. And, you know, um, Italian horror, we're big horror fans. Italian horror, not our favorite. No. Uh, And Suspiria, I think the original. I'm uh, a big fan of the original Suspiria. I uh, like it. Dario Argento's original. I just don't love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one I love. And Luca... Guadagnino. Mm-hmm. Guadagnino. Did I say that right? Who just did, a couple of years ago, did Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. Such a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he adds so, so much heft to this story. He does. I mean, it's basically, he, I think he has called it a cover version yeah. because it's not really a remake. He adds so much to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you keep the basic framework. You've got this American dancer, this time played by Dakota Johnson, coming to this uh, dance academy in Berlin. It's 1977. And um, there are some some witchy things going on uh, with the women who run this company. And that's about where it stops as far as the what they keep from the original. Yeah. After that, he adds so much more. He does. And as much as I do like the original, uh, one of the things I like about the new one is that it's from the perspective of women. It's a feminist film on the whole. You know what? I'm not even going to say it's a feminist film. Here's what it is. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen a film where the female characters are an afterthought, a joke, uh, completely unnecessary to the plot. I've never sat through a film before where the male characters were an afterthought and a joke, and very intentionally so. And I really, really thought that was fascinating Mm -hmm. about this movie. There's one male character of relevance, and he is played by Tilda Swinton. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's one of the... One of the changes, the very uh, superficial change, I guess, that uh, he makes is that there's no men in the dance company right. when there were in the original. So so it's one of those things. That's a very, very good point. But there, there are powerful women at the heart of this. There are women that revere each other. There are women that do harm to each other. There's also uh, the themes running through this movie, motherhood. 
Well, the power of women, um, it's it's just lousy with them. Yeah. And it's draped in such a, like, like he did such a great job with the mood of romance in Call Me By Your Name. That thing just dripped yeah. romance. This, this one is just, yeah, nightmarish dread. Yes, gothic. Yeah. Nightmarish yeah. horror and gr- the, the grotesque. Yeah. You know, these, these uh, images just pop in and out of the screen, you know, like a nails on a board or just weird kind of macabre images yeah. just to throw you off kilter. And, and they, there's a lot of dance, and it's really fascinating dance. There is a lot of dance and, and movement and talking about the power of movement and, and space and how it's used. And one of the other main differences of this one is that anybody that's seen the original Suspiria or really anything that Dario Argenta did, the color. Yeah. The almost neon color scheme. Oh, yeah. This one is totally opposite. This yeah, it's is very all muted. muted. It's very muted. And, and there's a, a much more obvious, clear narrative progression, whereas Argento, as is the case in a lot of Italian horror, it's it's much more surreal. The idea is it's intentionally more surreal. But, but uh, he, Guadagnino, offers uh, a much more specific narrative for this. Now, I think a lot of people are going to get thrown a little bit by how much of the film revolves around the kind of socio-political context of Berlin, mm-hmm. 1977. That is true. And I'll be honest with you, it's the only really fault that I have with the film. I think that it kind of went too far in that direction. I loved... I love the influence there, and I thought that it had some interesting points to make, but I felt like we spent maybe more time than necessary uh, with that part of the film. Yeah, because there definitely is time spent with that. Not only the denazification of Germany mm-hmm. of the time, mm-hmm. but also there's this side about one of the dancers. There are whispers that one of the dancers who has disappeared has run off to run an anti-fascist group, the mm-hmm. RAF, the Red Army Faction, that was um, active at the time with this uh, movement that came to be known as the German Autumn of the late 1970s. So, yeah, that's a lot of sociopolitical stuff going on. And they do spend a lot of time, and there's a lot of backstory going on with that, with the male character that Tilda Swinton plays, Mm -hmm. this uh, psychotherapist. Of course, she also plays Madame Blanc, the main, yeah, the main dance instructor, the choreographer, the one one everybody wants to study with. And she's she's just mesmerizing. We love Tilda Swinton. She's hypnotic. She is. You can't, when she's in the frame, you just can't take your eyes off her. You can't. It's like she knows she's playing a witch and Mm -hmm. just projecting that spell. Yeah. That's that's what she's got. And another big change from the original is that this one, they don't try to mask the fact that there's a coven here. Right. There's no mystery about it, really. Well, so the, the students... The dancers don't realize there's a coven. But the fact is that in Argento's, the audience was meant to puzzle out eventually right, that right. that was going on. In, in, in Suspiria, now I'm going to guess, he figured we already knew that. Right. But also, so he doesn't make any attempt. We're, we're aware from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, but there are, which is interesting to me because there are other things that he keeps from you um, that he reveals as the movie goes along that makes it just fascinating. Like, I love, I, you know, I love the I love the finale. I love the way this, the narrative structure turns. Oh. And and, and it's it's funny, too, because it's a fairly long movie. It's about two and a half hours, and there is a lot of dance, and there's a lot of atmosphere. But you've got two scenes of just full-on carnage. Oh, man. It's a, it's a slow, intense burn. There are... There are moments along the way that definitely keep you engaged. I mean, do oh, that, that, that slow burn. But you're right, man. It's like when it gets to that point, he knows you've been in this, you're invested, and if, if, you're, if you're all in, he rewards it, man. Because yeah. mm-hmm. whoo, whoo, mm-hmm. whoo. 
That is a slam bang finale. I think in the written review, I referred to it as kind of a mix of uh, the Red Wedding from Game of Thrones and a '70s movie called The Devils from oh, Ken yeah. Russell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny too because there's a, there's another really obscure '70s horror film. It's British and it's called Witches, and it's not the one with with Angelica Houston. It's just a you know like a coven film from the 70s, maybe even the 60s in England, and it's got kind of one of those orgiastic black masks, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it reminded me of that as well. Yeah, it's quite, quite a finale, and as you mentioned, there's a little something at the end, and we would be totally remiss if we didn't mention not only the music, the music, the score is done by Tom York of Radiohead, and it's very vivid, very evocative, but the overall sound design Every sound in this movie is just fantastic. So not just the music, but the overall sound adds so much to the story and the mood. And I loved everything about the sound going on here. The way it wraps up, I think, for some people may be a little head-scratchy. Um, but it's it, this is a movie that really gives you so much to digest. Yes. I, I saw it a few days before you did. Yeah. And I just kept, I wanted you to see it so bad <laughs> because I wanted to start talking about right, it. Right, it's right. one of those, you just have to, wow, wow. They really gave me a lot here to chew on. And uh, I think it's 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 really a, just a fantastic experience. Yeah. It's one of those movies that you felt like you've been through an experience, you know, and I think it's just just great. Next up is a movie based on a pair of best-selling memoirs. It chronicles the heartbreaking and inspiring experience of survival, relapse, and recovery in a family coping with addiction over many years. It's Beautiful Boy. My son has gone missing. Nicholas Sheff, S-H-E-F-F. There's no one by that name, sir. There are moments that I look at him, this kid that I raised, who I thought I knew inside and out, and I wonder who he is. I thought we were close. I thought we were closer than most fathers Wait, and sons. Yeah. Why? I felt better than I ever had, so I just kept on doing it. I love you more than everything. 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 First thing about this movie is to bring tissues. It is utterly heartbreaking, but ultimately hopeful. It's uh, based on two different memoirs, one by David Sheff and one by his son, Nicholas Sheff. And David was a successful freelance writer who had all the hopes and dreams in the world, as every parent does, for his son, Nick. And Nick, unfortunately, grew up to be a drug addict and an alcoholic and put his family through hell. David had uh, remarried after divorcing Nick's mom, and uh, so he has a new family that he that needed his time, his wife and young children. Uh, so it was taking him, not only proving to be very tumultuous for this new family, but then drawing his time away, away from this family that needed him as he had to try time and time again to help his son uh, rehab and rehabs that would turn into relapses and on and on it goes. And this movie is driven by two tremendous, just tremendous performances. Steve Carell is great as the father, David Chef, and he's just, he's so relatable, so full of, he's just crestfallen and confused. And like, when did his relationship with his son go wrong? And how was it his fault that that his son went off and, and took all these drugs and became addicted? And you can just see it's a very detailed, thoughtful, understated performance, and it works in such great tandem with Timothy Chalamet. And let me tell you, if you didn't get hip last year to the immense talent of this young man, I'll tell you what, this this performance has got to be remembered come award season, come Oscar time, as Nick Chef. He is just incredible. As he makes 
the characters slide into addiction seem real, but then once he is addicted, it's the way that he navigates his addiction, caught between desperation and trying to find a way to maybe get out of this, but then at the same time drawn back into it, the lure that he can't escape of this lifestyle and these drugs. And scenes where he's with his father and is playing on the love that he knows that his father has for him, playing him up, buttering him up to get money, telling him what he wants to hear, and then on a dime just turning, just turning because he's trying to pin the blame for his current situation on his father. And again, like I said, bring the tissues because it's it's just heartbreaking to see what this family goes through. And, you know, the bond between these characters and through these two actors, it draws you into this these parental bonds and makes you root for this kid. You want him to come out of this. And then you hurt so badly the times that he doesn't. And um, because we know that it's a memoir of both of these kids, we know, both of these uh, adults, we know that the kid has gone on now. He's still alive. He didn't succumb to this. So we do know that, that it's hopeful at the end. But getting there, I'll tell you, it, it will just... Just puts you through the ringer in the best, best possible way. It's not going to be for everybody because it really stirs up some strong, strong emotions and brings up some serious issues about what many in this country are going through right now. And this is the kind of hell that these families have to deal with. And so many of these addicts don't come out of it. And that's one of the things that they point out about this issue and about this disease of addiction. You learn some hard facts about dealing with it, trying to cope with it, trying to rehab and trying to come out of it, and uh, it's it's good that it gives you a glimmer of hope at the end because there's a lot about this story and about the people that are involved in these types of things. Unfortunately, this type of world of addiction, it's not hopeful, not hopeful at all, and the movie does want you to face those facts, but at the same time, re- the same time relate to this family and know that it, it can be, it can be, but boy, to come out of it, but it takes an intense amount of tough love and dedication, and uh, but just the performances alone uh, drive the movie. It does falter a couple of times. I think it, it pours on the manipulation a little bit um, and pushes a little too hard uh, with sort of greeting card mentality, I guess, of look how quickly kids grow up. And that seems with, with the issues that are really at the heart of this movie, that seems very, very trite for uh, the times that the, the movie tries to get that point across. We know that already. There's more serious uh, issues at work here. But that's that's uh, really picking nits in a movie that is very well done, well put together by director Felix Van Groningen, uh, who did the, the Broken Circle Breakdown a few years ago, which was it was a musical, really enjoyable. And uh, the screenplay, the, the two memoirs, were adapted by Luke Davies. And part of the other weakness of this film, small weakness, is because it's based on two very distinct stories, you know, what what the father went through, what the son went through, in combining them, at times you feel like you've lost a lot of intimacy on both sides to make room for the one story, make room, you know, molding it into one, which is which becomes a kind of a series of episodes throughout uh, throughout the lives of this father and son, including some very touching flashbacks. So, uh, have the tissues handy. It is heartbreaking, but it is also hopeful, and it is very well worth seeing. Beautiful boy.
Let's do a complete 180 uh, next. It's a family film. I guess the first family holiday film of the season. A young girl is transported into a magical world of gingerbread soldiers and an army of mice, the Nutcracker, and the Four Realms. Your mother was the cleverest inventor I ever knew. And there was never any doubt when I asked what her greatest creation was. You. Just a girl. Your mother created our world. My mother made all of this. The future of the realms lies with you. I'm going to fix it. Can you help me? It's time to save the kingdom. It's going to destroy everything my mother created. Are you ready? So this is one that lives in kind of a funny space between people that maybe like the classical music and dance of the Nutcracker and then other people who thought maybe they'd get a little backstory that they never got from the ballet. Well, the truth is... It doesn't deliver either of those things. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's like yeah. you're looking, you're, you're, right. some camp is looking for one, the other camp is looking for another, and no one's you satisfied. Know. No, because uh, as you know, my birthday is right before Christmas. And when I was a kid, you know, for many, many years, my family would take my twin sister and me to see the Nutcracker as like, and, and it was, and I'd be happy to go, and we'd sit there, and I'd do the, like, as the dance began, I would think to myself again, that's right. I have absolutely no idea what's going on. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. And so, you know, I thought to myself, as a Disney, as Disney takes a crack at this, that'll kind of be nice, right? They're going to explain the narrative a little bit behind these dances. And they don't. They tack on this uh, additional story about the four realms, which is not the story at all from what I have gathered over the, ballet, the years right. is with the ballet. Uh, it's got a lot of the same characters, but it's it's like a generation later, and there's a lot of weird science going on and uh, uh, sort of, you know, Hunger Games-esque weirdness. The other thing, though, that really stuck out to me is how little dance there is in this film. Very little. And Yeah, that's surprising. I think most people that would come to this movie would think there would at least be some more than there is. No, and there's not a lot of Tchaikovsky either. I mean, the, the score is rarely that lovely Nutcracker suite that we are so familiar with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, and, and uh, Sugar Plum from the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies is a main character, and she's played by Kira Knightley, who steals scenes gloriously. <laughs> she's absolutely a joy to watch. There's another, a new character, a character I don't recall from the ballet and she's played by Helen Mirren, Mother Ginger and she appears to be the villain of the film and she kind of runs this big un, uh, abandoned kind of circus uh, which is super creepy and that's where all the rats live and that's it's a fascinating notion but the thing is the film which is co-directed by Joe Johnson, who's not very good, and Lassie Hallstrom, who is sometimes good and then sometimes <laughs> delivers a dog's purpose. Woof. And together, they cannot, they cannot generate that sense of wonder that you need for basically right. any Christmas story, and certainly for this kind of a, a this particular and, ballet. And just fun. Yeah, there's, it's just not fun. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird a weird mix of of nothing that you expect, and really nobody leaves satisfied unless I guess it's 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 crappy outside. You've got a little one, you just want to kill some time. Oh, I don't take a little one. No, you you, you want to be at least ten. The, you know, the 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 story is too convoluted. And it drags a great deal. I would not take small children to this. It's pretty, kind of the way like a snow globe is pretty. It really is, but um, that's just—it's not what I would call a crowd pleaser.
Next, it's the untold story of the last days and the tragic times of Oscar Wilde, a person who observes his own failure with ironic distance and regards the difficulties that beset his life with detachment and humor. The Happy Prince. You've taken everything! My family, my work, my freedom, everything! There's nothing left to take! Suffering is nothing when there is love. Love is everything. I must love love and be loved. loved. Whatever price I pay for it. I'm kind of you to speak to me. You couldn't lend me five pounds, could you? This was a triple threat. This is writer, director, and star Rupert Everett. Yes, and uh, uh, he's not directed before, so I want to, uh, you know, really applaud the effort. It's uh, it's a great looking movie. It moves pretty at a, at a nice clip. Uh, I think he does a great job of showing the highs and lows uh, um, in the very end of Oscar Wilde's life. As a as a writer, well, he's working with Oscar Wilde material, so <laughs> this it's not that hard. You no know, offense. And and it's interesting. I've read an interviews with uh, Rupert Everett, who has been out for a while now, who has said that within the LBGTQ community, Oscar Wilde is is just he's almost a Christ like figure. Yeah. He's so revered. Oh well, but he, so he, because he came out. Yeah, uh, at a time when it in the late 1800s, yeah, yeah, and it and it didn't just end his career; it very nearly ended his life. He yeah. became he was at one point the most famous man on earth, and uh, and and this movie chronicles what happens to him after he goes to prison. So you have flashbacks of the moment where he's so sort of full of himself that he believes he is going to sue the father of his lover because the father has slandered him. And, of course, as soon as he's in the courtroom, yeah. uh, they just bring out, well, he slandered you because he said you were gay. Are you gay? Well, that was against the law for another many decades in England. Mm-hmm. And what wound up happening was he lost his fortune in paying his legal bills. He lost his wife, who was the rest of his fortune, uh, because she, she already had a lot of money. And he served two years hard labor. And when he came out of it, he had meningitis and he died uh, not long after. So he basically lost absolutely everything. And what's interesting about this film it's interesting that he chose this period in his life because the rest of his life is so colorful and so fascinating. To, to choose this area that really, honestly, most of us don't know very much about yeah. and focus there, yeah. um, it gives you such. I mean, it, it gives you such a sense, particularly from Everett's performance as Oscar Wilde, just the the highs and lows of of Wilde's life hang on his face. You can see from him what it's like to sort of remember back to being able to live this life as if the world was nothing but a bounty. Mm-hmm. And then, in the end, living the life knowing exactly, exactly how bitter, how mean, how cruel this world can be. Yeah. And if you can communicate that without speaking, that oh, yeah. that that's a, a, a time when you can really appreciate all the facets of a great performance. Mm-hmm. And when he does speak, he speaks lines of Oscar Wilde. So again, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, pretty, okay. it's pretty good. It's pretty good time. <laughs> yeah. I do think uh, as the writer, he tries a little hard to force the metaphor that is inside um, uh, Oscar Wilde's short story, The Happy Prince. I don't I don't think that works at all, but I don't think that it's, it certainly doesn't kill the film. I mean, the performance is amazing. The story is, is fascinating. And uh, so I, I definitely recommend it. And speaking of fascinating, next up is a long-lost movie, I guess you'd say. A Hollywood director emerges from semi-exile with plans to complete work on an innovative motion picture. It's the latest from Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. 
The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Movie? The other side of the wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. The other side of the wind. Well, here it is. If anybody wants to see it. I'm sorry, did you say the latest from Orson Welles, yes, who I died did. in 85? Th- this has a weird history. I think it started filming in 1970, and at that time, Orson Welles had been in semi-exile for about 20 years yep. or so. And it went on, the filming went on for, what, six, seven years? Mm-hmm. And when he he never finished it in his lifetime, and then when he died, they had to roam through about 100 hours mm-hmm. of footage to piece this thing together, those that knew him best, about try to get as close as they could approximate the vision he wanted. And it's it's just fascinating. It's like a 70s bomb went off <laughs> from 70s Hollywood, and you see all these faces. I mean, Peter Bogdanovich is one of the main characters yeah. as an actor. The main character playing basically the Orson Welles part is John Huston. Yeah. And then the the frame is just gets peppered with all these faces from the 70s. You may not know their names, but you would know their faces. I mean, heck, the guy that played the chief of police in the old Batman TV series. He's in there. All these these faces that you'll know. And it's just, it's fascinating to watch as Orson Welles is making a comment on the filmmaking community as he's trying to navigate his way back into it. Yeah. So as Orson Welles is trying to come come back but he has very little money, and the Hollywood has the, their the film paradigm has moved on without him. But he has all of these hangers on who who talk about him as if he's a god. He shoots a film about a director who's trying to come back after a long period away <laughs> to to an industry that has changed without him. But he's surrounded by hangers on that think of him like a god. It's so meta. It's amazing. It is, and it's so darkly funny. It's so funny uh, about the movies, the kind of movies that Hollywood was putting out then, and kind of these young directors and. You know, it's funny, the inside the movie, the movie in the movie that this director, John Huston, is making is just total, it's just inane. Unendurable, <laughs> hippie, pretentious nonsense is. is what it is. And it then is. how perfect, because that's really what Orson Welles was facing. He's like, this uh, is what you want to watch? Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a comment, and again, so darkly funny and and dry, and, and uh, but at the same time, you're, uh, admittedly, it took me a few minutes, maybe more than a few, to really get into it, to mm-hmm. really grip it, you know, yeah. because at first it's such a, a, a shock to the system. I mean, the dialogue is, it doesn't really feel like dialogue. It's like every line that's spoken is some sort of ph- philosophical statement yeah. on the nature of things. It's, yes. it's not, they aren't real conversations. No, you know? but they are, I think, a reflection of the pretentious yeah writerly, directorial, cinephile nonsense that just got bandied about his head because he was Orson Welles. Yeah, and it's it's one, like I said, it took me a little time to get into. And then once I really started digesting it uh, more after the fact, it's really the next day I thought, you know, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating to watch. It really is a glimpse of another... Not only era of Hollywood, but just just era in general, and uh, another glimpse you didn't think you'd get of a of a genius filmmaker right. in Orson Welles. So we'd really recommend that one, The Other Side of the Wind. And that takes us to boy, the lobby's full this week. It sure is full. Let's all go to the lobby. 
Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. We got to run through these pretty quickly. One that just hit home video, but is actually going to get a limited uh, theatrical release in a couple of weeks called The Dark. It is a fascinating, it's like a, a tween. No. It's a fascinating, like an adolescent. It's like a YA take on zombies, but I really enjoyed it. The performances are great. And uh, I, I just really thought it was quite moving. Another one on the scary movie scale, a little lower on the scale. Slenderman don't comes out this it. week. <laughs> just don't. You know, be as I am, offended on behalf of the great potential character that is Slenderman, yeah. that nobody can make a good movie for him. Yeah, and they didn't. Juliet Naked comes out this week as well. It was, a, it was a disappointment, really. I mean, we felt like it had everything there to be a good kind of Brit rom-com, and it just kind of fell flat. Another one that, boy, you had some hopes for and we didn't like, Teen Titans. Teen Titans. Go to the movies. That's right, because that was a fun cartoon that we always enjoyed, but it turns out fart jokes really are only entertaining for about 10 minutes, and then you've got <laughs> another 90 to sit through. One that uh, we did enjoy, it was well done, was Searching, the latest to play out on your computer screen. It's a mystery. John Cho is great as the father desperately searching the, the Internet life of his daughter as she has gone missing, and I thought it was well done. Also out this week is The Darkest Minds. Not as good. It's another waste of a YA experience, although it's not terrible, but it certainly is nothing new. Yeah, and The Spy Who Dumped Me comes out this week. That one is mainly, the main reason to see that is Kate McKinnon. She and Mila Kunis have to become wannabe spies as they chase uh, Mila's ex-boyfriend. And it's just, it's a send-up of the spy game, which has been done better. But still, if you just want to waste an hour and a half and, and watch Kate McKinnon do some funny things, she does enough of them, <laughs> as she usually does. And also out this week, one that we both love that we talked about here on the podcast a few weeks ago, Nicolas Cage in Mandy. It's out. So this one is out on DVD. It's been on VOD, but if you want to buy it and keep it, and you know who you are, now is your opportunity. Now is your opportunity because it is a head trip in the best, best way. And if you didn't stick around for the, for the stinger when you watch the first time, now is your chance. Now is your chance, that's right. It gives you a, a nice quick clue as to what you just watched. Uh, we'll ramp up the holiday fair next week as the animated version Dr. Seuss's The Grinch comes out. Also uh, a scary one, thriller that we're looking forward to called Overlord. Also Here and Now, Wildlife and the latest in the trilogy, well it was a trilogy? Now must must be a quadrilogy at yeah, this point. Yeah, quadrilogy. Nice. <laughs> Pays to enrich your word power. <laughs> the Girl in the Spider's Web comes out next week as well, so we'll talk about those and more. In the meantime, let us know what you thought of some of the movies uh, this week, because boy, there's a lot to talk about. Suspiria, what do you think? Bohemian Rhapsody, we love to talk. Uh, best way is on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf. M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, we're Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website with the written reviews and our other podcast that talks about horror movies only for you horror lovers. Come on over and join us in Fright Club. So a lot there. Get in touch if you can. Uh, until next week, the Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and brought to you by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>